Well, good morning, church. My name is Jason, one of the elders here at Church in the Square. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We'll be focused on verses 7 and 8, but I'd love to read our current context for us. If you remember, there's a few questions that Paul is asking and answering, um, and as he does so, it gives us good context for what we'll be looking at today. So Romans chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, again, are the beginning of the New Testament in the right side uh, of your Bible. Once you get to Acts, go one more to the right to Romans. If you get to First and Second Corinthians, turn back to the left. As always, you can also just type in Romans chapter 3 and uh, go from there. And so uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, and then we'll pray and we'll get to work. Sound good? Good to be with you today. Good to be together. Open up God's Word. Romans chapter 3. 1 through 8. Paul writes, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what value? What is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Verse 3, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Verse 6, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. These are the very words of God. And we say, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just acknowledge you. We acknowledge your, your presence in our lives. We acknowledge your presence as we gather as your people. We acknowledge your presence in the middle of a pandemic. We acknowledge that you are the God who is there and you are not silent. You are not inactive. You are not disconnected. But you are a God who is with us. And so, Father, we worship you because of who you are. We worship you because of who you have shown yourself to be through your word and through our lives. And so, Father, we thank you as we have read from your word, as we have sung worship to you as a result of the truth of the scriptures, as we've even prayed to you and confessed our sin in response to who we know you to be and who we know ourselves to be, Father, we, we just thank you. We thank you that in the middle of incredible chaos and confusion, there is one who is not confused. There is one who is not uh, befalled to the chaos, but is over all things and, and is working to bring about your good and pleasing and perfect will. So we acknowledge you as the one who holds eternity in your hands, who holds our life in your hands. And so, God, we submit to you. We need to learn. We need to grow. We need to confess. We need to be comforted. We need to be afflicted even in our comfort, Father. And so I thank you that you know what we need. We're here because you know what we need. And you give far more abundantly than we could ever ask for or imagine. And so, Father, we come to your word because you are a God who speaks through your word. You are a God who works through your word. And so, 
Father, shape us, convict us, mold us, and make us and break us for your glory, our good. In Jesus' name, the church said, Amen. Well, if you remember when Romans chapter 3, Paul asks a number of questions. He's answering those questions in this sort of like long-form diatribe that he has, a kind of dialogue with himself. But really what he's doing is that he is asking questions that he knows his Jewish readers would likely have. And, And it's falling within this larger context of God's judgment. If you remember, the day of the Lord is something that is casting a long shadow over this particular passage, uh, but not just precisely that, but God's judgment in general. And so Paul is asking these questions because these are questions that we ask, not, not just in the first century as Jews, but, but as people who don't want to be judged, as people who want to find a loophole, as people who want to hide behind our own righteousness and say, ultimately, that we don't need accountability, we don't need correction. And so we've had to sort of face our own sinful proclivities as we've read through Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 3. Because underneath the surface of these questions that Jews are asking, that Paul is voicing, we we find our own questions. We find our own hesitations and our own objections. And here in the fourth question, essentially what Paul is asking is that if God gets glory, if God is glorified when I sin, should I sin so God gets glory? It's this sort of you know, logical fisticuffs that Paul is sort of going through in his mind. And and that's the question that we need to look at. It's a question about sin. It's a question about glory. And it's a question that ultimately, if true, if the answer to that is yes, then the entire human project, or rather the entire Christian project, and really even theistic faith in general, would be completely washed away. Because how could a God who claims to be good garner something good from people's evil and the fact that evil people do evil things. And so it was this convoluted kind of question that Paul is voicing. How could a God who's created this world, this good world, benefit from or garner glory from us when we sin or lie or do evil? So that's sort of the foundation, if you will, of this particular question here in Romans chapter 3. But Paul actually will ask a similar question in Romans chapter 6, and he'll do it two times. Romans 6 verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul answers, by no means. A familiar way that he he says absolutely not. His emphatic charge that no, that's not the case. And in Romans 6 verse 15, he asks, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? And again, he says, by no means. Now, these questions in, in chapter 3 and these two in uh, Romans chapter 6 are expressed differently, but bear the same heart. They're coming from the same place. See, Romans 6, 1 is an objection suggesting that we should sin so that grace would increase And Romans 6.15 is saying we should go on sinning because grace abounds. So one is, should we do this so that grace increases? And the other is, because grace increases, should we just keep on sinning? And here, though, in 3, chapter 3, verse 7, the objection seems to be a matter of fairness. Is it fair that I am condemned as a sinner if that condemnation, if that sin brings glory to God? Therefore, our current passage concludes, why not just do evil that good and glory may come? Though Paul is coming at this idea differently over these two particular chapters and these three different instances, 
it has the same heart underneath this objection, a heart regretfully that I think we can relate to. And so we're going to press into this a little bit today. See, if I can suggest to you that the heart underneath all three of these questions in different forms is a heart of entitlement. It's one that supposed a sort of moral superiority and an even further, deeper, greater knowledge than God. See, all of these questions presume or suppose upon a kind of moral loophole to God's logic. In other words, God, I've thought of something that you haven't that doesn't make sense, and your inconsistency gets me off the hook to, to follow your word in your way, and now I get to do what I want. It's, it's this sort of attempt to have God in a gotcha moment. Like, now what are you going to say about that, God? Because now I've thought of something that you haven't, which, which would be laughable if it wasn't something that we regularly participated in. See, especially here in chapter 3, because sin is in focus, and it's very much connected to God's glory. So th this is more than a question. This, this was a type of charge that Paul says was leveled against him. See, did you notice, while his first three questions seem to be grounded in experience of his Jewish readers and something that perhaps they were voicing that he had heard, this fourth one is actually Paul voicing a charge that has been brought against him and his ministry. Notice at the end of verse 8 that it says their condemnation, or rather a, a little bit earlier, is that as some people slanderously charge us with saying. So Paul is voicing something that he has heard from a lot of people who have listened to his ministry, listened to his teaching about grace and forgiveness, and they sort of sit back and say, well, Paul, are you saying that if we sin, God gets glory, and so we should keep on sinning? Now, Paul never said that. Imagine this. This actually gives, us, gives, gives me in particular great hope and should give us great hope that sometimes we aren't understood. Sometimes people take our words and they twist them. They push them back and say, well, are you saying this? Is this what you're concluding? Is it?" And so even Paul, the great apostle, the great teacher of our faith, is ultimately misunderstood. People slander against his teaching and push back meaning and ideas that he never communicated, that he never intended. And so Paul is essentially voicing that accusation. He is confronting that accusation. And I think he confronts that accusation throughout the entire book of Romans, but he certainly does so right here. And then after he articulates their accusation, corrects their accusation, he then condemns them at the end of verse 8, saying that their condemnation is just. So it seems straightforward enough when we look at these two verses. Paul was falsely accused of bad and unlivable theology, and he calls it out, he denies it, and the entire book of Romans really gives clarity about his understanding of God's glory, the nature of sin, and, and the role of grace within our relationship with God. Nevertheless, we do really well, and this is what we're going to take some time with today, to understand the thinking, the believing, and, and the behavior, the, the loving, the affections that lead to this kind of objection that Paul is now defending in chapter 3 and, and will do in chapter 6. And as always, when we explore these kinds of objections from the scriptures, it reveals, uh, or maybe even we discover for the first time, our own objections, our own concerns our own hesitations from fully surrendering and giving ourselves over to the Lord. See, even if we've never voiced these concerns before, these concerns may be in our hearts because a lot of times our concerns or frustrations with God reveal themselves in our lack of obedience before they are ever voiced from our mouths. In other words, our habits, our behaviors can reveal things that we distrust, don't like, or disagree with about God and his word long before we could ever articulate it. And I think this is what the word will expose in us today. I know that's what has been sort of tilling in the soil of my heart uh, this past week in preparation. 
but before we get there, we've got to admit something. It, this this question, we're going to sort of interrogate it a little bit all the way through the message this morning because there's something off about it. Because at the very beginning, we need to admit something that when we are sinning, we don't give a rip about God's glory. So this question <laughs> that is being asked or sort of pushed back by Paul's objectors and by Paul himself articulating here is that when we're sinning, we don't care about God's glory and therefore we have certainly failed to understand grace. So, so this question is not about wanting to make sure that God's truth and his justice and his fairness is out there. It really is a question about how can I keep sinning? How can I do what I, what I want? See, rather, I think what's happening here is that this is an attempt yet again to find a way out of judgment and accountability. And we are always doing the human heart in our sin and fallenness is always trying to find a way out of judgment, out of accountability, out of being held to account for God's moral purity and his, uh, his sovereignty over us. You see, by definition, sin is the rejection of God's glory. Therefore, in my sin, I'm not trying to make sure that God gets glory. I'm trying to make sure I can keep sinning. I'm trying to make sure I can keep doing what I want. In that way, then Paul is actually posing an excuse disguised as a question. Paul, Paul is posing an excuse that's disguised as a question. You know, you know that, right? You know, you know, I mean, if you have children, you have heard this all the time. And if we're honest in our own hearts, these things are constantly happening. Let, let me give us one example that I think is our primary sort of modern equivalent is that there is a presumption or a modern version of this spiritual invasion that is grounded in personal happiness. Privately and publicly, our happiness is regularly our irrefutable logic for doing just about anything that we want to do. And, and so when, when we're questioned about our sinful behavior, when, when people say, hey, is that really the right thing to do? Is that, is that the way that you should be living? Or tell me more about that kind of lifestyle, that decision, that thinking, that believing, that loving. One of our responses, if not out loud, certainly in our hearts is, well, God wants me to be happy, right? God, God wants good things to happen to me, right? See, it's an excuse disguised as a question. In the case of the first century Rome, Paul voices his readers' uh, excuse for sinning in the form of this particular question. He says, if God gets glory when I sin, shouldn't I sin so God gets glory? To understand why this is actually another attempt to wiggle out of righteous judgment and not really a genuine question, we're going to look at a few things today. We're going to look at why we enjoy sin. That's right. I think it's something that we don't often admit, that sin is really fun and we enjoy it. It's one of the reasons we are constantly drawn back to sin. So we're going to think about that. We're going to look though also at why sin always ends poorly. And in that we should understand that it always leads to death. So, so sin is enjoyable and yet sin always leads to death. And then lastly, we'll look at God's glory, that God is glorified when sin is confessed, when sin is redeemed, and when sin is put to death. So we'll look at why do we enjoy sin? How do we enjoy sin? And then we'll ultimately understand that sin ends poorly and, and ultimately ends in death. And then lastly, we'll consider God's glory, that God is glorified when sin is confessed, when sin is redeemed, and when sin is put to death. So I think this is one of the, we'll start, we'll start with our sin and our understanding of enjoyment of it. So one of the main and many misleading presumptions about sin is that if something was sin or if something was sinful, then we would be repelled by it or we wouldn't want to do it. We, we presume that there would be this automatic and clear and constant distaste in our mouth and that we would always from it. And to be sure, as a Christian, we are new in Christ. You, sister, you, brother, 
are new in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. You are a new creation with a new mind, a new heart, and by God's grace, one day even a new body. Can I get an amen? Yet, as residents of this world, we have not yet fully become who we are. This is the way that one of my seminary professors put it in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, that ultimately in Christ, we have become something new, but in maturation, in sanctification, and one day in glorification, we will fully become who we already are. This was his his understanding of, of harmonizing these two truths, that we are a new creation when we meet Jesus, and yet it's also really clear that in following Jesus, we're still growing, we're still learning, we are still being made new. So in Christ we are new, but in Christ we are becoming who we are. And among other things, this means that certain inborn desires and longings and patterns of our hearts do not fully and automatically disappear when we come to Christ. In fact, I, I grew up with, within the church and maybe many of you within a generation of testimonies or sharing stories of coming to Jesus that almost required a kind of, I used to do this, now I don't do that, and I do this. This kind of automatic transformation and completely different lifestyle and urges and longings. And to be sure, some of that is, is the way in which God works. But it, it's not always. Some, sometimes when we come to Christ, it means we're still taking some of the frustration and pains and sinful proclivities that we knew before Christ. We're still working those things out in Christ. The evil one would have you doubt your salvation. He would have you doubt that you ever even came to Christ or that God has given up on you. And yet it's in those things where dependency is fostered, where where trust is fostered. So the truth is, what scripture I think bears witness to over and over and over again, is that when we come to Jesus, we receive God's spirit and a new heart. That's what it means to be in Christ. These then bear witness in our daily battle against sin and the old self or what scripture calls the flesh. See, the presence of God's spirit does not guarantee that you will never sin again, but it does guarantee the presence of God's spirit is that you will never be alone even in your sin and that your sin will never have the last word because Jesus will. This is the promise of his spirit. So that means that sin is still a daily battle. Sin is still a daily battle for you. It is still a daily battle for me. And this battle does not negate the new life. In the new life, we have power in Christ to combat the sinful desires of our heart. That's what James tells us. James chapter 1, verse 14. But each person, he says, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So even though God's spirit lives within God's people, these desires persist in my heart, which lure and entice. They draw me towards sin. Notice these urges and desires are not sins in and of themselves. These are temptations. This is that urge, that drawing towards sin. What James says though, is, is that those desires conceive and give birth to sin. See, even in Christ, we regularly want to sin. Why? Well, because sin is fun. Sin is enjoyable. And so let's put it this way. Contrary to what we perhaps believe, that that we are not actually always repelled by sin in the way that we probably think, that in our flesh, we are drawn to it often. And so in Christ, what, what the call is and what we have been empowered to do is to make war against sin. 
Not to say, well, if God didn't want me to have it, he wouldn't put it before me. This world is broken and things are before us that God does not desire for you. And so in Christ, we, we must flee those sinful passions and actually cling to him and his mercy and his grace. Because you see, even though we, we are not yet leaving this battle of sin in as much as that we will still be daily tempted, in Christ, we have everything we need to fight the battle. In Christ, you have everything you need to fight the battle, namely God's spirit and God's word. So let's be real clear. I want to zoom in a little bit about our love, our, our enjoyment, the fun of sin so that we can understand the battle and by God's grace, through his spirit, by his word, we can make war against it. Because sin makes us happy in a few ways. Well, in many ways, but I want to look at a few of them. And, and when we ask, doesn't God just want me to be happy, we will give ourselves to them and not think with the new mind that God has given us. So, so first, let's consider that sin is enjoyable because sin is self-centered. Sin is enjoyable because sin is self-centered. If we think about the way James describes giving birth to sin, in that passage that we read, and the language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 1 about the passions and lusts of the heart, sin is rooted in my feelings being expressed and being satisfied. My urges, my longings being met with experience, being met with, with taking something that I desire or not doing something that I don't want to do. In other words, hear, hear this, the metric for sinful decision-making begins and ends with what I feel or what I desire or what I think or what I want. This is the inception, this is the birthplace of sin thinking about making decisions based upon what I think, what I want, what I desire, what I long for. And, and this is sinful because it is an entire worldview based on the centered self, on me being at the center of my life. And in modern psychology and well-being sort of group think, if you will, having a centered self is about, you know, having a balanced and holistic life. But there is another way that the scriptures describe the centered self means something entirely different. Me at the center is about me getting glory. About me getting glory. And, and we all, according to Pastor J.R. Vassar, we all hunger for glory. He uses this language in his book that bears the same name, glory hunger. And this glory hunger may not look the same for all of us. It doesn't mean that we all desire to be on a stage or desire the spotlight. It means rather that we all view the world through ourselves, that we all view the world through ourselves. I think glory then is a biblical way of thinking about credit and significance and honor and worthiness. See, we may not want that billboard life, but we all want to be seen and acknowledged in the manner that matches our desires. As counselor Ed Welch said that we are all looking for something from other people. So, we might say, well, this, this sinful behavior or this, this type of sin is helping me express my true self. But that's the, the gaslighting power of sin. It is enjoyable to be at the center of your own life. This is why it's fun. This is why it's enjoyable to sin because sin has us at the center of our own lives. Secondly, sin is enjoyable because it builds friendships. I want us to think about this because this is often uh, misunderstood and I think that we can be very blind to this. So we're asking for the Lord's help that we would see this in our own community, in our own relationships. So sin is enjoyable because it builds friendships. See, some of our strongest bonds, hear this, are built on sin. 
Some of our favorite relationships, our best BFF people in our lives are actually based upon sin. In fact, in recent years, Christians have begun to speak about community. You know, that buzzword that we throw around in this sort of defiled kind of way without even realizing it. That ultimately, a primary reason why we go to one church, one group, one place, one people, one circle of friends is this all-powerful word of community. As if community is the most important possible thing in all of Christendom, in all of the kingdom of God. That therefore, to have good community means that you can take license to do whatever you please. That ultimately, my community, my people, are the reason that I can make these different decisions. But we often actually make friends and community based on sinful patterns and and idols that we share in common. Sometimes this practice is really obvious. For instance, we may make friends with people who drink too much so that when we drink too much, they won't say anything because we're all drinking too much. Or maybe we make friends with people who gossip so that when we talk behind somebody's back, they won't call us out on it because we're all talking behind each other's back. Are you, are you tracking with me? We, we, we can do this. We can build friendships based on sin, but it can be more subtle than that. Professor uh, Rosario Butterfield sees, sees a, a very pervasive and subtle way that we build relationships on sin. And in an interview in 2019, she talked about how we make idols out of our friendships. And she explained that idolatry happens in our friendships when we are not mediating that relationship through Jesus Christ. When we desire for a person something that God does not desire for her, or desire for that person to see us in a way that God does not want us to be elevated. So we might say, well, I'm making new friends and friends are good. God wants me to be happy, right? He wants me to have friends, but that's part of sin's sinister power. It is enjoyable to make friends regardless of what brings us together. And often the thing that brings us together is sin and a lack of dependency upon God. Thirdly, not only is sin fun or enjoyable because it's centered on self, but sin is also enjoyable because it builds friendships, and sin is enjoyable because it provides instant pleasure without immediate cost. Sin provides instant pleasure without immediate cost. In fact, our entire uh, modern culture is built upon the premise of seeking pleasure and happiness at minimal cost and maximum reward. Think about it. One of the fundamental aims of any new technology is to make your life easier and to take away more pain, to minimize pain and to increase reward. In fact, writer Andy Crouch says that this is what makes our lives fundamentally different from every other generation before us. He says that we are living a life that even our grandparents never imagined and could not fully understand, a world in which the technological dream of easy everywhere has come true, is coming true, before our very eyes. That comes from his book on the the TechWise family, which I commend to you as a way to think through how technology ought to be uh, curated and used, but not uh, overblown, not only in our own lives, but in our families' lives. But in that, he helps us to see that ultimately, technology has entered our lives with a promise. I'll make your life easier. And we want easy to be everywhere. So it shouldn't be a surprise that so much of sin promises instant gratification with no cost. Whether pornography, slothfulness, anger, sin tells us 
we can experience some amount of power or pleasurable experience right away with complete ease. With complete ease, right? Even so many financial models are, are built upon zero dollars down. You don't have to pay anything right now and you get it all right now. You can pay us later. Our world is built upon this premise. And we almost never question the premise that easier is better. We presume that that is true. See, if we have, this is really how it breaks down, right? If we have a sexual impulse that we want satisfied, even if we're married, wooing our spouse or waiting until marriage takes time, it's hard, it's sacrificial, it's much easier to fantasize and to hop onto some sort of digital expression where lust can be gratified, right? It's just easier. There's no cost to it. So we think instead of discipling our children, for instance, which God is teaching me over and over again in the midst of COVID and at home learning, God help us. Right? Instead of discipling my children when they are disobedient, because that takes time and energy, right? Parents, can I get an amen? Anger and losing my self-control promises to grab hold of the situation and bring about an easier moment in my home, a more restful evening, watching my show, having my time and my space. See, sin makes a promise. I'll give you what you want right away and it won't cost you anything. It's enjoyable. So we might say, well, it feels good and it's not hurting anybody. Must be okay, right? See, it's enjoyable to have what we want when we want it without any cost up front. Sin is enjoyable because it's, it centers the self. Sin is enjoyable because it, it brings friendship. And sin is enjoyable because it provides instant gratification with no cost. But, but here's, here's the issue that the scriptures have with our pattern of living within sin. See, we are not central, God is. So it is sinful to be at the center of our lives. Christ alone satisfies and mediates our joy. So it is sinful to look at friends to fulfill us in a way that only God can. We are called to live by the Spirit and submit to His leading. So it is sinful to pursue immediate ease and the gratification of the flesh. We are to find our joy in the Lord, not in the thrills of this life. You see, this is not only true individually and personally, but when we look at communities, when we look at the, the whole communal project in which we, we live, whether it's our small group, our church, or our country, we see that we can build models, ideas, systems upon sin that give birth to sinful ideas and sinful structures. Let's think about politics, because that's an easy target right now, right? We created American politics together. It wasn't just something that, that showed up and we go, ah, we got to deal with a democracy and this two-party system and all of this. Now, this is something that we have engineered together. Politics, then, is a great example of how this sin moves not only from the personal but into the, the corporate. That politics is sinfully centered on self in two ways. One candidate constantly tries to convince whether the country or their particular, um, particular district that they esteem themselves to be the savior of all of our problems, the previous administration, and whoever their opponent might be. And when we, uh, not only that, but when we think about who to vote for, we think about, well, who serves me the best, or at least people like me, that people are in my class, people are in my bracket, in my city, in my lifestyle. Now, I, what's really interesting is that we might all agree that politics is, is evil and it's broken, but we don't want to admit that we participate in the folly. This is what makes, I think, N.T. Wright's review of politics so scathing for us. See, he says that politics will stop being our demon when politicians stop being our gods. Let that settle, church. 
Politics will stop being our demon when politicians stop being our God. See, with this full view of sin in mind, it is easy to see that there is a false premise in the question that Paul is asking and that we're considering. Look again at Romans 3, verses 7 and 8. Romans 3, verse 7 and 8. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Hear, hear this. God does not get glory from me being self-centered. God does not get glory from you building relationships which are not dependent upon him. God does not get glory from us gratifying the flesh. This is not true personally, nor corporately, or communally, or nationally, or globally. Therefore, the premise of Paul's question and the accusation that is leveled against him is inaccurate. So, does God's truth abound in lies? Does God, uh, does good rather come because evil persists or evil is done? There must be more to it. In fact, it gets even worse the more that we look at Scripture. And so we'll do that now. See, sin is fun, but that fun runs out quickly. See, all of these sinful proclivities are enjoyable, but their pleasure never lasts. Their pleasure never lasts. See, a, a life centered on self ultimately leads to isolation and disappointment. A life of relationships not mediated by Christ lead to unreasonable expectations and betrayal. A life of gratifying the flesh will lead to addiction and fictional standards of beauty and happiness and relationship. You see, this is true individually and communally. You see, we enjoy sin. In fact, we enjoy sin so much we can't imagine obedience being enjoyable. But sin always ends poorly. Consider again James' words. We, we looked really at the beginning of what he said in that passage in James 1, 14 and 15. But now hear how he concludes in verse 15. But each person, he says, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And here it is. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There's this progression. Did you notice? There's this build, if you will, to all of sin. Sin begins with a desire. It's just a temptation, it's, but it's conceived then in a thought or an action. Then it gives birth to sin. And the maturation of sin or the progressive development, the eventual development of sin leads to death. This is an aspect, and that's always true. This is an aspect of what theologians call retributive justice. Retributive justice is a reality that God's world has been made in such a way that ultimately things which are opposed to his will and eventually, will eventually and naturally face righteous judgment. This was a, a doctrine that Dr. Martin Luther King spoke about, picked up on the divine nature of retributive justice when he famously said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. He understood and believed and built his life upon the idea that ultimately God's world, God's way, that God's creation would ultimately lead to justice and all things flourishing under God's sovereign care. So sin is so opposed. Hear this. Sin is so opposed to God and the world that God has made. Sooner or later, only righteousness will endure. Only righteousness will endure. One of Job's friends knew this. And so he, he spoke this. He preached this to Job about the nature of God's good world. And here's what he said in Job 20, verse 4 and 5. He said to Job right in the middle of his troubles, 
So he says to us right in the middle of our troubles, do you not know this from of old, since man was placed on earth, that the ex exalting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless but for a moment. As we considered last week, Job, though the suffering was not his fault, Job sinned in the middle of his suffering. And that sin, though it may have felt like a way of regaining control in the middle of chaos, in the middle of a frustrating and painful situation, that sin ultimately led to God's judgment over Job. See, sin is enjoyable, but sin never leads to lasting exaltation and lasting joy. Sin is always and ultimately only a thrilling mist like life. Here one minute and gone the next. And in a more principled way, the Apostle John in 1 John 2.17 says that the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John tells us something staggering. So staggering, we move very quickly away from it. We, we miss how uh, shattering this reality is. So let's not miss it. It's not just that things we do in sin are not wise or not helpful or they don't lead to ultimately what we need or want. He is saying it's much worse than that. He says this world, this realm, this life, these bodies, they are passing away through every moment of life's inevitable and progressive funeral, we are also then saying goodbye to the patterns and powers and thrills of this world. Because sin is passing away, so is the world that is built upon it and is marred by it. Do you see, church? Do you hear? Do you believe? Sin is fun, but the fun never lasts. And sin will always take more than it gives you. Sin will always take more from you than it gives. Whatever pleasure is received from sin, the pain it causes always outweighs the reward. After all, the final and eventual cost of sin is death. That's what James said, and that's the fullness of retributive justice. All sin leads to death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. Sin has certain short-term costs, to be sure, and we've highlighted some of those. But a life which has been given over to sin, finds ultimate penalty in condemnation. That's Paul's warning at the end of verse 8 in chapter 3 of Romans. Their condemnation is just. It is accurate. It's on point. It's the fullest expression of God's justice. The word condemnation has a similar root to it as the word judgment that we find here in Romans. That means that God has not just built a world where sin doesn't win and righteousness does, but he actually steps in personally with wrath and righteousness and judges the sins of the world. He pronounces a just condemnation over anyone and everyone who has built their lives on sin. See, life's progressive funeral finds finality in God's judgment. He judges sin. He judges us. He judges all of this world that has been broken and devastated and divided by rejecting him as God. And if we are outside of Christ, that judgment will result in eternal separation between us and God. See, I hope that you've heard the false premise in Paul's accusation that he is voicing, that he has heard from so many people in Romans 3, verses 7 and 8. God is not glorified when we sin. God is not glorified when we build relationships that do not depend upon him, where Christ is not our mediator, where we look to each other to fulfill something that only God can. God is not glorified 
ultimately in the way that we build our lives upon ourselves. God is glorified in his response to sin. God is not glorified by sin. God is glorified by his response to sin. God is glorified even by God's grace as we respond in a godly, Christ-like way to our sin. See, God is glorified when sin is confessed, redeemed, and put to death. This is where Romans 3 is leading us, and it's so good. It's such good news that all of this is building to this eternity-shattering proclamation that a righteousness apart from the law has now entered into the human story to justify, redeem, and heal. And he, that is Jesus Christ, redeems and justifies and transforms dead sinners like you and like me, all by grace through faith. This is how God is glorified. See, in doing so, Jesus reveals an entirely new side of righteousness and justice. It's called redemptive justice. Redemptive justice is Jesus' death and resurrection. He endured the full weight of sin's consequence so that he could extend life and righteousness and forgiveness to you and me because of our sin. Justice is served by righteousness, or justice is served, but righteousness is extended to us. And in this, in God's response to sin, not sin itself, God is glorified. Are you tracking with me, church? This is really good news. This is so helpful to get our thinking away from the accusation that Paul has just recited here from his uh, accusers, that God is not glorified through our sin and evil. He is glorified by his gracious response to it, either in judgment or in forgiveness. This is why Paul couldn't accept this accusation. This is why he couldn't accept this pronouncement and why he pronounces judgment over his accusers. He's God's glory is not dependent on our righteousness. God's glory is self-fulfilling. God's glory is his God-centeredness. God's glory is that he needs no mediation between Father, Son, and Spirit. He is perfectly unified within himself. God's glory is that he knows eternal pleasure with no cost, with no pain, with no problems. Do you see? Do you hear? Do you believe? Everything you seek, God already possesses. Everything that you seek, God already possesses. So leave behind your sin. It won't deliver you. Leave behind your life centered on self. Leave behind relationships that foster sin and function sinfully without dependency upon Christ. Leave behind instant gratification at no cost. Yes, it's fun. Yes, it's enjoyable, but only for a moment. All of these lead to progressive corruption and eventual death. Church, I plead with you, along with the scriptures, leave this fiction. Cling to Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. The writer of Hebrews identified this in the life of Moses. And he wrote in Hebrews chapter 11, sort of summarizing God's work in Moses' life and how he was able to respond to the sin around him. Hebrews 11 verse 24 and 25 says that by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. 
You notice this, how, how the writer of Hebrews helps to kind of bring all of these themes together for us. That Moses, who was ascending in power in ancient Egypt, who could have had the world at his fingertips, if you will, had, had money and power, relationships, all of the things perhaps that you and I sinfully pursue in this life. And what the writer of Hebrews says, instead of choosing that, instead of clinging to that, he clinged to God, to the mistreatment of his people, and was willing to suffer in accordance with God's will, was willing to suffer in order to identify with God and identify with his people because he saw a greater reward, something greater than money, something greater than the fleeting pleasures of this life, something greater than the power that he had possibly have garnered in the government and the power of the nation of Egypt. Can you even imagine? Moses saw something, perhaps in a dim reflection that you and I now can see crystal clear in the person faith, life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because you see, Moses left an earthly kingdom to identify and be mistreated with his people. But the son of the living God left an eternal and heavenly one to be mistreated for your sake and for mine. How dare we avoid any suffering, pain, and conflict as if it is too little for us to endure, too, not too great for us to endure, something that we could never identify with when God in Christ is identified with those for our joy. See, the scriptures tell us that he did all of that, just like Moses, who had this reward. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised its shame. See, what's revealed in the life of Moses is that giving into the powers of this world and the lusts of the flesh and desires of sin is not inevitable. We don't have to do that when we are the people of God. Actually, now by God's spirit, through his word, we can flee the sinful passions and pleasures and fleeting desires of this life and cling to Christ. In other words, outside of Christ, you don't have the opportunity to run towards righteousness and to identify with God because you are not in relationship with God. But when we are in Christ, we are given his spirit and his word and ability as new creatures to flee from sin and to cling to righteousness. And righteousness, and juxtaposed with sin, righteousness is centered on God's glory. That means instead of desiring or having desires, our desires and feelings determine our thoughts and our actions and belief, we consider God and his word in all things. When we think about this pandemic, we, we ask, how would God have me trust him and serve my neighbors? When we think about where we live, we, we ask questions like, where's God sending me? Not where do I want to go? When we think about uh, our work, we, we ask, in what ways is God calling me to point people to Christ? Not just, can I help the bottom line of this company? When, when we are asking the Lord to shape our thinking, our mind, we, we ask uh, and we think about who we are in Christ, not who we are in our work and in our own power and in our own merit. What does God say about me? And what does his word make clear about my identity? See, a life centered on God never leads to isolation and shame. Because we are united with Christ and he has washed us of a guilty conscience. That's a life centered on God's glory. Not only so, but righteousness builds relationships mediated by Christ. The writer C.S. Lewis used to say that true friendship is not about two people looking at one another and saying that they like something that they see in the other. It's about seeing something together and agreeing that it is worthy of cost, worthy of pursuit. It's not selfish, it's missional. Biblical friendship is not seeing eye to eye, but rather shoulder to shoulder. So we do not ask, what do I get from this relationship? But rather, what does God desire for our friendship to accomplish for his purposes? What does he desire to accomplish in his, in his kingdom through 
our friendship through our relationships. See, friendships which are mediated by Christ are friendships which lead to God's glory and not our own. Righteousness is costly now, but it is eternally joyful. It's hard to follow Jesus. See, the New Testament is constant with this metaphor that Jesus first employed, that you need to pick up your cross and follow him. See, it's hard to follow Jesus. It is difficult to choose righteousness, to submit to his word, to submit to his will. To to follow Jesus is to identify with him in suffering and pain. In our modern context and prosperity gospels that are morbidly preached from pulpits still to this day, and God help us, keep us from such lies, have deceived us into thinking otherwise. But to know and to love and to follow, to build our lives upon the rock that is Jesus Christ is to live against the grain of this world and to walk a narrow road. It's costly right now, but it is joyful forevermore. It's like the joy set before Jesus that he endured on the cross, despising its shame so that we too could know the eternal joy that he has shared with his father from eternity past and will share with him in eternity future. In the age to come, he has promised us a pleasure that will far far exceed anything we could possibly ask for or imagine. See, righteousness is about God's glory, centering your life on God's glory. Righteousness is about building relationships where you need to necessarily depend upon Christ and are submissive to him to mediate your relationship. And righteousness is costly now, but it is eternally joyful. See, God's glory is God's God-centeredness, yet in Christ, he considered our need. He thought about us. God's glory is that he needs no mediation between Father, Son, and Spirit, yet in Christ, he invites us into relationship with himself, the triune God. God's glory is that he knows eternal pleasure with no cost, and yet in Christ, he pays a great cost that we might share in his lasting joy. How good is our God? Do you see him? Do you hear him? Do you trust him? Do you believe him? See, God's justice is not merely retributive. It is also redemptive. It also draws us back to home. It draws us back into family and relationship with him. See, every sinful urge is meant to be put to death in Christ. And every righteous longing that we have is meant to be satisfied in him. Back to Romans 3. We do not lie so that God's truth would abound. We do not sin to bring God glory. We do not do evil so good would come. We worship and trust the Lord who is glorified through his own justice. He condemns sin and is glorified. He forgives sin and he is glorified. So may we be a people live who live centered on his righteousness. Be a people that ultimately bring him glory in our relationships. And be a people who are willing to endure temporal costs for eternal joy and reward. Father, would this be true? Would this be true of us, your people, for your glory, Father? Help us to walk that narrow road that is costly. It is hard to follow you. And yet every challenging step has already been walked by our Lord. So may that fill us with joy. May that fill us with hope and confidence in Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, everybody agreed and said, amen.